welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on March 19th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. A team of 30 scientists from across the globe has put together a list of nine environmental processes that must remain within specific limits, they say, or what they call the safe operating space within which humankind can exist on Earth will cease to be safe. John Foley, director of the University of Minnesota's Institute on the Environment and one of the group's leaders, has an article on that effort in the April issue of Scientific American. We talked when we were both at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in February in San Diego. You have this article leading off a section in the magazine, and the way you approach things is through a discussion of tipping points. Let's go through them and and what you mean by them and what the import of them is. Well, the idea of this article is um, about planetary boundaries, uh, which is kind of a fancy way of saying two things. One is that we're approaching some limits in how our environment works that are like tipping points. They're, They're like a cliff that you walk over and you can't come back again. Uh, those things are sometimes very bad. We don't want to jump off cliffs without seeing where they are. The other kind of limit we're talking about are where you don't fall off a cliff, but you can't go back again. You suddenly end up on a one-way street where you've degraded something in the environment so much, it's effectively irreversible. You may not be off the cliff, but you aren't ever going to go back to where you were before. So this broader notion of planetary boundaries is something that a group of scientists around the world, uh, led by Stockholm University and others, have recently been pulling together to say, wait a minute, we're pushing the limits on climate change and biodiversity and land use and overdrafting water supplies and pollution levels and so on. And we thought, well, wait a minute, instead of addressing all these issues independently, we need to make a map of the world kind of showing where the edges are, um, you know, where the dragons on the map may be lurking, if you will. And that's really... It's a reference to maybe some of the younger people don't know, but (laughs) those of us who are four or five hundred years old like myself (laughs) know that on the old maps, uh, on the boundaries, it would say... There be dragons, you know, here. Yeah, because we felt... uh, Yeah, that's a a fun metaphor because in in those days, you know, we thought the world had an edge uh, you could fall off of. And so we're kind of taking that metaphor maybe to a 21st century equivalent and saying, well, the, you aren't going to fall off the planet's gravity, but we may tilt our planet into a world we would never recognize, something that is so fundamentally different, and we've kind of fallen off the edge of the map in a sense because we can't remake that world back again. And we're very dangerously close to doing that. One of the uh, points you make in the article is just how much of of the photosynthesis that's carried on now mm-hmm. human beings kind of uh take advantage of it it's just it's an astounding percentage of all the photosynthesis in the world well absolutely there's no doubt that we live on a completely human dominated planet uh we use 40% of the earth's land right now in crops or agriculture we use a lot of the world's oceans for harvesting fish and so on. And so, yeah, if you look at the photosynthesis, uh, we're using like 30 to 50 percent of it, depending on what numbers you look at. That's not 40 percent of the arable land. That's 40 no, percent of, of all the land. land. Yeah, all the land, everything. It's going into feeding ourselves. Yeah, 
yeah. or feeding the animals that we then use. Most of it is actually for animals, but yeah, exactly. It's 40% of all of the land on Earth, not counting Antarctica, but every piece of land, 40% of it, and the best 40% is already being used in one kind of agriculture or another right now. What are some of the other, let's talk specific, some of the other yep. uh, tipping points that we're getting perhaps close to? Right. Well, the first that people are most familiar with, I think, is climate change. Uh, now, yeah, there's some skeptics kind of on the edge of all this kind of stuff. And there's reasons to be, you know, careful with the numbers we're using here, of course. But the point is we are altering our climate. There's no way around it. The laws of physics demand that when we add greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, we're warming the planet. You can argue how quickly, how much, what it's going to do, but you can't reinvent the laws of physics. What we're finding, though, is that if we get to warming that's more than – right now we've warmed about maybe six-tenths of a degree centigrade, about a one degree Fahrenheit, warmer than we would have been. Well, that's not that much. We're beginning to see the effects. But we get to be two, three degrees warmer than we've been for the last 10,000 years. That's where we start to worry about irreversible damage, uh, things that are really bad, like losing ice sheets, starting to raise sea level, where coastlines have to be redrawn and people have to move. That's a irreversible, nasty, large impact you don't want. So we're saying, okay, that's a boundary we don't want to cross. We're going to have some more global warming, but how much more and how when it does become dangerous and irreversible is where we try to set a boundary. Um, that's the most well-known one. Um, another is like biodiversity loss. Uh, we're now losing species at a hundred to a thousand times faster than we should be based on the normal geologic rate of evolution and the loss of species. A thousand times faster. Uh, that is undermining ecosystems all over the world. We're losing critical species. Uh, just think of the, the honeybees and, you know, what's going on with them. Uh, to show how dependent we are on that. So we're, our ecosystems are unraveling too. Uh, another big limit is um, pollution levels, especially from nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, things that are in small amounts are very good for us because they help fertilize our crops. But we pollute too much more, use too much fertilizer. We can impair lakes and rivers and even degrade entire seas and coastal oceans, causing them to have uh, dead zones like we have on the Gulf of Mexico where no fish can survive. Or you'll and, have some kind of other... For example, in the Everglades, you have cattails that move in mm -hmm. and displace the native plant species, yeah. and they they ruin Innovative the habitat, species. right? Yeah, because my part of the world is reed canary grass and purple okay. loofstrife. Same idea, yeah, right. exactly. So yeah, uh, exactly. So we're we're charting around or kind of this wheel, if you will, that you see in the article. These ideas that well, there's climate change. Here's where the cliff looks like it might be. We're getting dangerously close to biodiversity loss. We're over the cliff already on that one. Nitrogen, we seem to be over the cliff. We're getting close to it in phosphorus, water, land use, other things. So um, I like to imagine the uh, metaphor of like we're on top of a plateau somewhere in the desert at night. And our car, and our driving really fast in our car, and our headlights are off, and we don't even have a map. Um, that's a dangerous way to operate. Wouldn't it be good to turn on the lights and have a map of where you think the cliffs might be before you drive off the edge? And so that's really the notion of this planetary boundaries. Just let's see where we don't want to go. You, you mentioned in the article there are some people who are kind of against this approach yep, because, yep, yep. well, for for various reasons. Why don't you talk about some of the objections to this approach well yeah i mean uh, this we, is really a philosophical approach as much as a 
scientific one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the brilliance of this, uh, and I really have to give credit to the, the folks in Stockholm who really first pushed this idea forward. Um, the the re- response to this, I think, came into three categories. One was just the normal denialist, oh, wait, there's nothing wrong, don't worry about it kind of thing we see in climate change and other environmental issues. Well, they're demonstrably wrong, so I don't pay attention to that too much. The two, you, you will, uh, if you go to our website after I post this, oh, yeah. you'll see many comments from people who are, will explain in great detail and with much vehemence about why you're wrong. Yeah, well, I, I would, I would challenge them to say, do you obey the laws of physics and where's your data? Um, until we see both of those, I'm not that interested, but, um, I, I think it's important to respond to these kind of criticism and to be f- fully honest about it. Um, uh, you know, we've had some, well, on both sides, let's say the climate change issue, we've seen a distortion of science uh, happen in a public, very public way by people on both sides of this issue now. And uh, that's really disturbing. But the central tenets of the science are still sound. It's just we have a lot of fury and light on the edges of it right now that isn't very helpful. But the basics are very sound. At least that's what I'd argue. But the two criticisms that um, I took really seriously when we had this paper come out was one, um, hey, by putting a boundary, like a, a firm boundary on the edge, are you telling people it's okay to drive up to the edge of the cliff and stop in the nick of time and everything's okay? It's okay to cut down 99% of the world until you hit the limit and not the last 1%? Is that what you're trying to say? Man, of course not. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying that we can, you know, we continue to damage the environment more and more and more. At some point, you break the camel's back. With two, you know, the, the straw finally breaks the camel's back, if you will, and that's extremely dangerous. But it's best not to put so many straws in the camel's back to begin with. You don't wait till the last straw. So that's one concern we took very seriously, uh, and I, I understand that that debate, and that's something that will be going on for a while. The other, of course, is just the more technical pieces of like, well, I don't agree with where you put this number, and we tried to err on the side of caution. If we said. Uh, well, the boundary could be between A and B, but we're closest to A. We're going to set it at A. You know, we're going to put up the police tape that says do not cross at A just in case. So we're trying to be very conservative, maybe on the uh, too conservative uh, point of view, but I'd rather rather do that than, than otherwise. So uh, those were the kind of two uh, sets of reactions from our peers uh, and other um, environmental folks around the world. And so we're working on that and trying to think about that. But like you said, it's more of a, a mental framework and philosophical framework than it is a specific number. Uh, we're just saying, well, uh, like the idea of like tragedy of the commons or limits to growth or something, we're trying to, you know, here's a, a way we can bring together a number of different conversations around this one kind of paradigm and see if it's helpful. And um, I think it's, I think it might be helpful. We're hoping it will be, and I'm eager to see what your readers think of this. You said that a, a few of these uh things that we're tracking we've already gone over yeah like nitrogen yeah nitrogen yeah well that's right in in the analysis that was uh this was all originally published as a scientific paper in nature last fall and then um you see it again here in scientific american in a um uh more distilled form what we show is that yeah that in terms of climate change in terms of nitrogen pollution into our waterways and oceans and in terms of biodiversity loss, we have already caused irreparable harm to the planet. Um, doesn't mean that's the end of the world, but in those three areas, it may be the beginning of the end of the world as we've known it. Um, 
you could argue on the climate change one, but on nutrient pollution, we've used so much fertilizer and so much uh, nitrogen compounds or loosen the environment. It's hard to recognize our coastal oceans anymore, other species that are gone in them, that kind of thing. Our, our inland lakes are almost ubiquitously polluted with nutrients um, and getting green and slimy when they didn't used to be. Um, so, you know, the, those things are, are changed. They're almost irreversible, and they're going to be with us forever now. So in that case, what's the upside to stopping? If I've already fallen off the cliff, well, there's, there's nothing I can do to, to reverse my fall. Well, there's there's falling, and then there's throwing yourself off the cliff as fast as you can because uh, you're taking down a lot of other things with it. Now, the pollution we have in nitrogen is more localized. We're seeing a lot of this in uh, the upper Midwest in wells near uh, cornfields, or a lot of them are polluted with nitrate. We're seeing nitrate pollution in the Gulf of Mexico. And a lot of our coastal oceans near the mouth of rivers that are downstream from big ag production regions that use a lot of fertilizers. Uh, we can slow that. We might be able to reverse some of this damage. But it's also we have to make sure it doesn't spread to other parts of the world. So it isn't – that is another fallacy, too, I guess, of this paper in some ways that some people pointed out as, well, you're giving us one number for the whole planet. For climate change, that might be okay, but for pollution levels, they're often more localized. So how do you set a limit for, you know, Iowa versus, you know, Italy versus Kazakhstan? Like, well, it, they are regionally specific in some cases, and that's where more science needs to be done. But again, this is a framework, not a yeah, not a finished argument. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. This was almost, um, we intended this to be a thought-provoking piece where we said, look, the numbers here are less important than the framework, and the framework can be adapted, revised, but, you know, the idea of pulling this all together of, wait, there may be boundaries beyond which we do not want the environment to go, either because they go into a tipping point and fundamentally change or because you cross an irreversible amount of damage. And uh, so that was really the whole point of this, and, um, and I, I'm hoping uh, that this idea is useful. If it's not... Um, We'll come up with better ones, but this is the idea that we're trying to, you know, it seemed to resonate with people across a lot of different backgrounds and disciplines. So it, it began, began to be a framework where ecologists and climate experts and chemists and other people concerned about these issues all could say, hey, I see where I fit in this, and we all have a similar story. And it kind of tied it all together. What about economists? Yeah. Well, increasingly, economists are recognizing the needs to think about living in a finite world. Um, we've based our economy forever on the idea of infinite resources, infinite frontiers, and infinite exploitation, and infinite substitution that we could, well, we ran out of this, we'll find something else. You know, infinite growth isn't really possible anymore. We're beginning to realize that we've known that for years, but the economists are also realizing this too, which is great. And so the idea of putting a value, an economic value on the environment itself um, that ecosystems have value, even if we don't use them for crops or for timber. They store carbon. They regulate the water we drink from flooding or becoming polluted. The bees that are in the environment help pollinate our crops and so on. So there's been a, a real revolution in, uh, in economics to really take into account the value of a pristine environment, or at least a, a healthy one. And so that's a great way to help frame these issues because, uh, I, at least for me, um, I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not an environmentalist. I'm an environmental scientist. I actually, I'm originally trained in physics and astronomy. So I, I look at these things and say, well, 
I care about them because this is really about people. This is about our economic security. It's ultimately about our health and our welfare and about how our children are going to live. And um, this is a pragmatic issue. And if we if we can find ways that are economically and socially viable to keep our planet from going into dangerous territory, all the better. Yeah, it, it's a point that needs to be made over and over again. But uh, we're not saving the planet. We're saving humanity if yeah. we if we do wind up doing the right things and and improving the the quality of life for oh, everybody sure, yeah. who, who is alive. Because as George Carlin said, <clears throat> you know the the planet's going to just get rid of us like a bad case of fleas. It's the people who are, and then he used a construction that we don't use on this podcast to describe it. But I just wanted to uh, say we, we're actually talking on February 19th. Yes. And on February 18th, the, uh, the British paper, The Guardian, published an article. And uh, let me quote from... Uh, from the article, the cost of pollution and other damage to the natural environment caused by the world's biggest companies would wipe out more than one third of their profits if they were held financially accountable. A major unpublished study for the United Nations has found because hmm. we we never do take into account the economic value of the environmental services that we get. Yeah. From the natural world around us. Just, just in terms of, for example, water filtration. Exactly. Ordinarily, yeah. a city might have to pay for that and then it would be on the ledger somewhere. But if you have some kind of a wetlands that, that mm -hmm. does it for you, it seems like it's free. But when you destroy that wetlands, then you find out what the economic worth really was. Well, yeah, precisely. And, uh, we've seen terrible examples of that after the Christmas Day tsunami, uh, in Asia recently where we saw, for example, a lot of people pointing out the places where mangroves were left intact had much less damage into the coastlines than the places where the mangroves were cleared for shrimp farms or other things. So we see, you know, environmental protection that way. We see, um, in places that had severe mudslides in Honduras after um, a number of years ago after Hurricane Mitch, the, lands, the areas where forests were left intact didn't see nearly as much damage. So, yeah, we see huge economic advantages during disasters of keeping an intact ecosystem. Um, just think of the, the you know, New Orleans and the coastal wetlands and so on after Hurricane Katrina. But at the same time, we also should recognize that even in the background, like wetlands, forest, uh, healthy ecosystems and so on are doing a lot for us that, you know, if they send us a bill, it'd be a lot. <laughs> They're, well, one, providing oxygen into the atmosphere. Uh, I like oxygen. I, we all need that, right? Well, I'm breathing it right now. Yeah, a little bit anyway. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, we have, um, ecosystems that are storing carbon and keeping it out of the atmosphere. A lot of it, actually. That's, that's pretty helpful to help keep our climate in check. It's, um, helping to regulate the flow of water through our soils and rivers to keep it cleaner and so on. Uh, also bees, you know, and pollinating insects. Uh, we've been so concerned about them uh, disappearing in certain places in the world recently. Well, you know, this is a joke and I'm not, I'm not saying this, but you know, maybe they just went on strike. We weren't paying them, <laughs> you know, and of course that's not what's happening. But again, um, there's been a, a incredible revolution in what's been called like ecological economics and the idea of um, coming up with, you know, the value of ecosystem goods and services. Like, well, wait a minute, maybe we should not just put a fence around nature and say, thou shall protect this because it's good, but say, wait a minute, this is worth something. This is worth a lot. And, um, if we have to put a dollar figure on it, so be it. 
Um, but there are other ways we value things too. We value um, avoiding risk more than we value money. Uh, you know, we we buy insurance. We do all sorts of things. We, um, dec- you know, we um, are very risk averse um, in terms of things like national security and terrorism. We spend a lot of money fighting terrorism more than the insurance agencies would say a human life is worth. But we don't want that to happen. So that's valuable. We have cultural amenities too, like. Our national treasures and parks, we don't want those to go away either. So to figure out what the value of these environmental services are is really important to make sure the human side of the human environment system is really represented. And that's pretty crucial, I think. And again, this is going to be the beginning of a discussion. And are you going to actually check in with the with the magazine and the uh, and the website to see yeah what I'd be happy to yeah. so uh, in the blog kind of feature or the uh, comments section yeah I'd be very happy to see what people write in and uh, I'll uh, be happy to chime in if there are some constructive questions or comments that uh, I can respond to um, in a useful way I'd be very happy to do that you can read Jonathan Foley's article boundaries for a healthy planet in the April issue of Scientific American and on our website. It's part of a special section called Living on a New Earth. And see a video summing up environmental boundaries on the Scientific American website. It's in the video area, and it's embedded in the blog titled, Is the Earth Past the Tipping Point? All at www.scientificamerican.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a survey of British children found that 70% of 9 and 10-year-olds would like to be famous for winning a Nobel Prize in science. Story two, speaking of Nobel Prize winning scientists, two Nobel physicists recently portrayed two other Nobel physicists in a production of the play Copenhagen. Story three, the Large Hadron Collider will close at the end of 2011 for up to a full year for additional construction. And story four, researchers have found that you leave a chemical signature on whatever you touch that is as unique as your fingerprints. And time's up. Story one is true. 70% of British 9 and 10-year-olds would like to be famous for winning a Nobel Prize in science. But among 11 to 15-year-olds, only 33% still share that wish, perhaps because they figured out that winning a Nobel Prize in science is no way to become famous. John Bardeen won two, and I bet people would have knocked him out of the way to get a glimpse of Charo. Story two is true. Nobel Prize-winning physicists Alan Heger and David Gross played Nobel Prize-winning physicists Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg in a recent production of Copenhagen at Santa Barbara's Music Academy of the West. Stephanie Zimbalist was the female lead. You probably remember her from the NBC series Remington Steel. See, I told you that winning a Nobel Prize was no way to become famous. And story three is true. The Large Hadron Collider will close at the end of 2011 for up to a year so that joints between the machine's magnets can be reinforced as well as some other additional construction. Until then, the collider can't crank up to its full potential. Also, this way, the LHC can't be blamed if the world ends in 2012 because of the Mayan calendar thing. By the way, on March 19th, the LHC broke its own record by creating beams of protons at an energy level of 3.5 trillion 
electron volts. All of which means that story four about leaving a unique chemical signature on everything you touch is totally bogus. But what is true is that researchers did find that you leave a unique assortment of bacteria on stuff you touch. Your bacterial assortment is different from mine, so an analysis of the bacterial residue at a crime scene could potentially help identify a perpetrator. For more, check out the March 16th episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find out how to enter our world-changing ideas video contest. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article gets to the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. I tweet as at Steve Mursky. Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 